Speaking of athletics, it is Winter Olympic time, and um, ratings are down a little bit, but you know, we check in and, and, and check out here and there, but we got wrapped up into a few things that are interesting to us. There was this uh, Marie Nagasu, and she was the first American woman to nail a triple axel, and so I had to find out what a triple axel is, and it's pretty cool. It's a very special thing. And then there is uh, Ayumu Hirano. Now, during the snowboarding event, uh, my son, Tyler, got very, very good at guessing the scores. I mean, he was nailing it about to the 10th on snowboarding half pipe. And so this Japanese kid gets up and, and Tyler calls a 96.5, but he only got a 95.25. And then Sean White did his thing. And, and my son, Tyler, and really the whole family was, you know, okay, happy an American one, but this kid got a little ripped off. So you know, we're a little amped up about that. And we got pretty pretty clear about the you know, technical prowess of the snowboarding half pipe. Now, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't care too much about any of this. These are sports we don't care about for three years and 50 weeks. But you get to the Olympics and we start caring, right? And then there's those Brits. <laughs> we, we went to war for a reason, it was probably this. They are, they are cheating, they're wearing illegal suits. The, the world thinks they're wearing illegal suits, they're saying they're not. We all know that the rules of the skeleton is no aerodynamic elements whatsoever may be attached either outside or under the race suit. And their entire race suit is grooved with aerodynamic grooves. Um, then there's the Japanese skater. Japanese skater, um, let's see if I can get this right. Yuzuru Hayano. This kid was amazing. Now, hey, USA all the way, I'm cool with that. But when we saw this kid skate, it's like, wow, you've got to be kidding me. That is next level figure skate. Have I ever watched a single second of figure skating over the last three years and 50 weeks? No, could care less. But that night, we were totally enthralled with this guy. And as you know, right, this is almost obvious, he had uh, two quadruple jumps and a triple axle, which of course adds 10 bonus points, right? We know that. Artistic styling, intricate footwork, and as we also know, he nailed a quad toe with a triple toe combo late in, the, in, 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 his, in his round, which means his legs were tired, and he still pulled that off. Incredible what we get to know when we step in and care. And then the curling controversy. <laughs> the world stops spinning with the curling controversy. This is China v. Switzerland, and China puts it right in the middle, so they get a stone for that. They get a shot for that. Then the Swiss and the, and the Chinese stones are, are straddling the, the center Chinese stone. Now, if the Chinese are closer, they get another shot, and then they win. But if they don't get that shot, then it's a tie, and the world stopped. And they held that Chinese stone to move it and might have touched the Swiss stone, which might have moved it a little tiny bit and changed the whole course of the race, or whatever that is. It's amazing what we get to know when we choose to step in and care, right? Now, what we're talking about today is unexpected engagement. Unexpected engagement. I'm gonna make an argument today that for 1900 years, the church deeply cared about the world, but for the last 100 years, chose not to care. The reality is when these winter games are over, we're gonna stop caring. We're gonna say, hey, see all fools in four years, we are back to our you know, business here with real sports. <laughs> no, that was, I'm kidding. These are incredible athletes. But we don't care for a period of time, then we care for a short period of time. I'm gonna make the argument today that the church cared deeply about this world and was deeply engaged in the world for 1900 years. Over the last 100 years, we began to care less and to separate ourselves from the world. And it's time to correct that course and it's time to care more. 
It's time to become experts in the things of the world and to be involved in the affairs of the world and to deeply love this world and to deeply care about the world and to deeply engage this world to bring the vision that God has for this world. For 1,900 years, the church cared deeply about this world. They cared deeply, and we'll, I think, prove that today. There was a fierce commitment that was based on a theological understanding that God has a vision to change the world, to make the world better, to make the world very much like the kingdom of heaven. So there was a fierce commitment for healthcare, a fierce commitment to help the poor, a fierce commitment to equip the next generation, a fierce commitment to help people in need, and a fierce commitment to see that justice was in all the earth, that there would be no one who was oppressed and no one who was voiceless and no one who was marginalized. The history of the church um, wasn't always rosy. There are some black marks on it for sure. But for 1,900 years, generally speaking, the church cared about this world. And this is based on a, on a theology. It was based on an understanding of God's work in this world. And it started with Genesis chapter 1, this beautiful word picture of, of creation, right? And I want you to notice a theme in the creation account. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters into the sea, and God saw that it was What? Good, I need your participation. The land produced vegetation and God saw that it was good. God created the creatures of the sea and God saw that it was good. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and God saw that it was good. You see the theme? This understanding that the world is good, intrinsically, inherently good by God's creation, now it became broken, didn't it? It became broken because God not only spoke these good things into existence, but God handcrafted, this is the analogy of, of, of Genesis 2 really, that God handcrafted mankind out of the earth, custom made man in his own image, breathed life into mankind, and then gave mankind a job description. You will be over the earth. You will take dominion over the earth. And my job description for you is to subdue and order this world. We were put in charge. So this good world that God made broke. It didn't break because God broke it. It didn't break because you or I personally broke it, but it broke because humanity, the collective humanity chose to pursue pride and greed, gluttony, violence. We chose to abandon God's heart for this world and we chose to elevate ourselves. As a result, this world is broken. Now, what did God do as a result? God did not abandon the world. He did not destroy the world. He said, even though mankind made in my image broke this world, God made a determination. He made a vow. He made a covenant. He made a promise that he will restore and redeem and renew this broken world. In Isaiah 45, 7 through 8, it says, you heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let clouds shower it down. In other words, this world is, is, is broken. This world is in a, a winter it's in a cold, rainy winter. But God says, let the rain be righteousness. Let the rain that's coming down on this cold and broken earth, let it be the good things of heaven. And here's what will happen. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. You see God's passion in Isaiah? We studied Isaiah pretty well in depth five summers ago. And it is such a, a, a book of salvation during the writing of Isaiah, the, the earth was broken and just violence and corruption and chaos. 
but God puts his flag in this earth and he says, I created it. I created it good and I made man in my image and I will restore and redeem man and I will restore and redeem the earth. God is making a promise in Isaiah and God is, is not messing around with this promise. I have created it. I will restore it. I will renew it and I have redeemed it. What is redeeming? Redeeming is a purchased exchange, right? If you have a coupon, for those of you couponers, I hear this is how it works. You have a coupon, you exchange it for a discount. There's an exchange. God says, I have redeemed this earth. I gave the life of my son to pay for the sin and the failure and the suffering of this world. He paid a price in full so that what emerges is nothing less than the kingdom of heaven taking root on the earth. This is the theology that for 1900 years fueled the church's engagement in the world. The church loved this world. The church invested in, in this world. And, and that spilled out in all kinds of beautiful ways. Among them was Christian hospitals. Healthcare has always been uh, inextricably linked with the Christian church, at least for the first 1900 years. In, in early Christianity, before it was even legal to be a Christian, Christians were known for caring for other people when they were sick not just in their own family and not just in their own faith, but they cared for the sick in their neighborhood. This gave them a great reputation. When Christianity became legal, uh, through the uh, First Council of Nicaea in 325, the Christian church decided, as we build cathedrals, we are gonna build a health center in every cathedral. That was the early church. As soon as it became legal, their dictate and their mandate, we're gonna build a health center in every cathedral. From the fourth century to the present time, Christians have been especially prominent in the planning, building, funding, and operation of hospitals. The link of healthcare and the church continued all the way through the Middle Ages. It wasn't until the late 16th century that um, governments started funding healthcare. Before that, it was the Christian church. When governments started funding healthcare through taxation, they funded Christian hospitals. That's when the merge of healthcare between church and state started happening, and the state funded Christian hospitals. The great missionary movements of 17th, 18th, and 19th century, they sent missionaries to spread the message of Jesus Christ all over the earth. But whenever they sent a missionary, they also sent healthcare specialists because they, you could not imagine preaching a message of love without practicing love through caring for the sick. So the, the missionaries were almost always sent with healthcare professionals to provide uh, and to meet the needs of those uh, who are being preached to. By the 20th century, virtually every major denomination built hospitals. Catholic hospitals were staffed primarily by unpaid nuns. Protestant hospitals were staffed primarily by deaconesses. Uh, currently, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, and Seventh-day Adventists still operate some of the best hospitals in the world. Christianity and medicine are historically buddies, they're allies, and it's natural. Why is it natural? Because one of the names of God is Jehovah Rapha, which means the great healer. God himself, one of his names is the great healer. And so it's embedded in the Christian DNA to bring healing. All you have to do is follow Jesus around for five minutes through the gospels and you'll see that he's healing. He's not just talking about love, he's practicing love by bringing healing to those who are sick. Our own little contribution to this world of healthcare is plus one Palawano. Uh, you may know for the last three decades, we have been sending and supporting missionaries to the Palawano people group in the Philippines. We got word back from them that the Highlanders uh, were struggling intensely and that their children were dying at a rate of 50% did not make it to five years old. 
almost all by, by curable, preventable disease of water contamination, uh, diarrhea, malaria. And so we immediately, in one weekend, funded Plus One Palomano. And now there's a staff of nursing professionals out there. A couple more just got their nursing credentials. And so there's going to be more nurses sent to the Highlands, all funded by Rancho Community Church, to bring basic health care to children, saving lives. That, that alliance between health and the Christian church has always been there, especially for 1,900 years. Matthew 10 says this. Jesus says, hey, you've got a message and you've got a ministry. The message is the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the core message of Jesus. It's not how to get to heaven out there. The core message is bringing heaven here. That's the core good news. Then Jesus says, you have a message that goes along with that, uh, our ministry that goes along with that message. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. Jesus says, I've given care to you, now you bring care to this world. Not just a message that heaven is coming, but real practical implications, real practical ministry to care for those who are sick. Then there's Christian aid organizations. It's just been natural for the first 1900 years of the Christian church to bring Christian aid to those who are in need. These are mercy ministries. Again, before Christianity was legal in the first three centuries in the Roman Empire, Christians were known for bringing mercy, not just in healthcare, but in food and provision to people who are in need in their community. As a result of their care for their neighbors, one in seven people in the Roman Empire were Christians before it was even legal. Serious stuff. That's quite a reputation. And that was driven by their love for people shown through mercy. By the fourth century, there were Christian humanitarian institutions already cropping up to help people in need. Right now, there are tens of thousands of Christian orphanages, Christian homes for the mentally ill, for the physically challenged, uh, homes for the chronically ill. There's tens of thousands all over this world. There are tens of thousands of Christian clean water project agencies, farm projects, food distribution projects, helping hundreds of millions of people in need all over the world. The, the Christian movement is driving humanitarianism all over the globe based on a theology that God will restore and redeem this world that is broken. There are Christian rescue missions in virtually every city in the country. If a city is about 10,000 people or more, I can just about guarantee you there's a Christian rescue mission there helping people in need. Red Cross, Salvation Army, World Vision, Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, major multinational organizations doing so much good all started by the Christian Foundation of Mercy, believing that this world is gonna be a better place, believing absolutely that everything that is wrong will be made right and that God's gonna use us to do it. Our own little piece of that is our farm project down the road and Community Mission of Hope. Both started in 2008 in light of the Great Recession. And we have helped tens of thousands of people, probably upwards of 100,000 or more. 3,000 people a month we help with food and supplies and aid to get them through the end of the month, preventing homelessness in many cases. Uh, we have a, a ministry of case management and mentoring that is helping to walk alongside people who are homeless or near homeless and getting them bit by bit, block by block, toward the vision of a home. And amazing things are being done. This is a compulsion of the Christian church. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, Jesus commands at the end of his ministry, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus says, somehow, someway, I am mystically in the life of those who are suffering. And Jesus says, if you minister to somebody who is suffering, it is though you're ministering to me. God has a very special place in his heart for those who are struggling. 
So when we provide mercy to those who are suffering, we are providing mercy to Jesus himself. Jesus also has a heart for justice. Jesus was railing against the um, religious self-righteous and says, you are forgetting the most important things of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So the justice ministry has always been a part of the Christian church, at least for the first 1900 years. There was a care for this world. So wherever there was injustice, the church stepped in uh, to, to solve it. Now, I have to be honest, sometimes the church history with justice isn't so good, right? Helping to fund slave trades and things like that. Awful, awful stuff. But by God's grace and by the Spirit's uh, conviction, the church turns itself around. And so the church ended up leaving, leading the abolitionist movement that brought freedom to the slaves. International Justice Mission is helping us, and they've been here several times, helping to equip us in the justice ministries, which tend to be very complex. You have whole you know, systems that are set up against people and keeping people in oppression. Uh, we get the pleasure of uh, having a human trafficking uh, team that is helping to pull people out of human trafficking and to give them a life and a hope and a future outside of that. We support Pasi Esperanza, a South American ministry that brings legal protection to children and women who are experiencing uh, horrific uh, physical and sexual violence. And in some parts of the world down there, they have no voice and no legal representation, no homes to go to. And so we're privileged to partner with them. All this is driven by a theology that wherever there is injustice, God will make that right. In fact, in Isaiah 42.4, God is very firm here. He says, I will not falter and I will not be discouraged until my justice is established in all the earth. And so from a Christian mindset, wherever there is injustice, and that could be uh, uh, racial inequality, gender inequality, it could be uh, underpaying, it could be slave labor, child labor. I mean, that list, unfortunately, is very long. Uh, victims of abuse who are left marginalized, wherever there is injustice, a, a broken judicial system, wherever there's injustice, the Christian mindset that cares for this world and sees a vision of God's kingdom established in this world would say that can't happen. And so we're gonna mobilize and we're gonna, we're gonna support and we're gonna resource until there is justice in all the earth for every man, every woman, every child. This is God's compulsion, this is God's heart, so it should be our heart, it should be our compulsion. So the Christian church for 1,900 years was deeply engaged in healthcare, mercy ministries, and justice ministries, and also Christian schools, Christian education. Here's a, um, an image of, of Harvard, the first Christian university established in America. In fact, the first university established in America in 1638, founded by Pilgrim Puritans. Five minutes off the boat, they're establishing a university. Why? Because they know in order to see the world become what God envisions, you have got to equip young men and women not only for a vocation that they're skillful in, but to equip them in a vocation that is tied to a biblical vision to see God's kingdom established in this earth. Not to equip kids, young people, to make money. That's a side benefit. But to equip young men and women with a deep-seated passion to change the world to look more like the kingdom of heaven. And yes, through skilled vocation, you end up being able to provide for your family. That's a bonus. Christian education was deeply ingrained in the church. Every Ivy League school was a Christian university at its founding. Harvard in 1638, Yale 1701, Princeton 1746, Dartmouth 15, uh, 1754, Columbia, William and Mary, Rutgers, Brown, and UPenn, all founded to ground young men and women in this incredible vision of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Equipping them skillfully in their vocation to make this world a better place the first 106 of the 108 colleges started 
in America were started as Christian universities. By 1860, there were 246 colleges in America. Only 17 were state colleges. The rest were Christian colleges. And of course, the pinnacle of Christian uh, education, Rancho Christian, started in 1981. But in all seriousness, the reason why we have a school is not to fill our space Monday through Friday. The reason we have a school is based on a theological foundation that the best way to bring radical transformation to this world, to make this broken world look more and more like heaven, is to not only equip students in exceptional education so they can go to university, get a good job, make good money, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's a pretty thin life. A full life is a life that does that all fueled by God's vision to bring radical transformation to this world, to bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth. Now, not every family is a Rancho Christian family here, and I understand that. So if you go to a public school, if you go to a, an, another private school, if you are a teacher, an administrator, a student, a parent, in any school, just know that you are there as the light of Jesus Christ, not to just get your kids to make a few bucks, but to equip your kids to change this world more and more into the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 78 speaks to this. Here's the importance of equipping the next generation. The next generation will know God's decrees, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn will tell their children. You see a multi-generational passing on. There's four generations here represented in this one little verse. God wants generation after generation after generation uh, to not just succeed, but to know his word and to understand his vision and to make a difference. They would then put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. All of this compulsion of the Christian church towards healthcare, towards mercy, towards justice, towards Christian education, all of that is towards the prayer of Jesus Christ in Matthew 6.10. Jesus taught us how to pray. This is called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really our prayer. Jesus says, pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the attitude of a Christian church that is engaged, unexpectedly engaged in this world. Not leaving the world, not abandoning the world, not separating ourselves from the world, not judging the world, not aloof from the world, looking down on the world, but actively engaged in this world. To love the world, to transform this world by the power of God towards this vision. We want God's kingdom to come here. We want God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The first 1900 years of, of the church history had that theology, held that compulsion. And then something changed. Something changed about 100 years ago. Uh, a new theology emerged. It's a new theology that is somewhat understandable. It's a theology that emerged in the 20th century, and the 20th century was rough. The 20th century included World War I, the Great Depression, the Holocaust in World War II, atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, the Cold War, and the very real threat of global extinction. That's the 20th century. For those of you who are my age and older, you know what that's like. We lived uh, La Vida Loca. It was wild, right? So it's understandable that a hopeful theology would change a little bit. For the first 1900 years of the Christian faith, there was this hope, this general widespread hope. Things are getting better. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Where there's mercy, we'll bring help. Where there's injustice, we'll bring justice. Where there's sickness, we'll bring health care, right? The world is getting better. God has a vision. God has a vision. 20th century hits, the church loses its vision. Essentially, here's the result. The church cared deeply about this world. The church cared deeply about this world, and then we didn't. Now, this is just big picture generalizations. 
the theology changed from a theology that engages and cares to a theology that separates ourselves. Here's what the new theology taught, and this will be familiar to probably most of you. The world would not be saved. In fact, it would be destroyed. The hope of the church wasn't to redeem the world, but to escape the world. The afterlife became the priority, not this life. And heaven became something we experience out there only when we die. No thought at all that there could actually be heaven increasingly experienced right here. This became the normal theology of the last hundred years. And for those of you who have been raised in a normal church over the last hundred years, this would seem very familiar to you. It's a shift. And what we're asking is to at least consider the possibility that we might get back to that 1900-year vision of hope, that there's a brighter future, that we might not want to separate, but we might want to engage. See, this new theology taught that the cosmos and the world is quickly coming to an end. It's a sinking ship that we need to escape. And because it's a sinking ship that we need to escape, what you would hear in churches, this is youth group and in, in big churches, we say, is that escaping the world is the greatest act of holiness. So we were taught in youth group and even taught in big church that, you know what, you've got the non-Christian friends out there, they're gonna influence you and they're gonna drag you away from faithfulness, so you need to separate from your non-Christian friends. You need to se separate from secular media. Anything that was secular was bad and the Christian church invented a much worse version of that for the church, right? You know what I'm talking about. We had to separate everything. We had to separate music, separate music, separate friends, separate everything. And that was considered to be obedience. Whenever the church is open, you gotta be in church. Whenever you're by yourself, you know, you, you read, you pray, you, you don't do anything the world does. You gotta separate. Well, we look at God's word and we look at the life of Jesus in particular, and we don't see a separation, we see an engagement. I mean, here, here you have John 3.16, which is obviously the most famous passage in the Bible. God so loved the world. He loved the world. He's not just sitting there angry, ready to condemn. He loves the world, eager to save, right? He so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And over the last hundred years, we look at this eternal life as what happens when I die. It is so much deeper and richer than that. It is about now and forever. But then there's John 3, 17. It says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God loves the world and has a vision to save the world. We know that. How did he do that? He did that through what we know as incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh, or more precisely, the Word of God, the full expression of God taking on flesh. Here's John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, so this is time, or before time. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So if we know our theology, triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, uh, you can say second person of the Trinity is the Word of God, the expression of God. Wherever the Father expresses himself, that's the Word, that's the second person of the Trinity, that's Jesus Christ taking on human flesh. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling, and here's the key, among us, among us. God invested in us. He invested among us. The Son of God took flesh among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is the heart of God. God is sent, bringing heaven to earth, so he sends his Son from heaven to earth, but that's not where it ends. Here's the doozy. You ready for the doozy? John 20, 21. Jesus says, peace be with you. 
Now, this is at the end of his ministry. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Big gasp here. As the Father sent Jesus Christ, Jesus sends us into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world to bring the kingdom of heaven here. Then Jesus sends us into the world to bring the kingdom of heaven here. That's an eyebrow raiser. Wow, are you kidding me? As God sent the Son, the Son sends us. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We are not alone. We don't have to figure this out on our own. We've got the Spirit of God in us. We've got the Word of God. We've got each other. We've got the the example of Jesus, and we follow Jesus. And we want to have the courage to be able to say, wherever Jesus came to this world to change the world, to better the world, to bring the kingdom of heaven to the world, to bring redemption and restoration and renewal to the world, we then are pleased to step up and say, God, the Father, as you sent the Son, send me. I want to make a little bit of a difference here as well. I want to move the needle. I want to leave this world better than I found it. I want to impact people positively around me. See, Jesus is sending us into the world the way the Father sent the Son into the world. And we, as a result, are Jesus in flesh. We are called the body of Christ. First Corinthians calls us the body of Christ. Ephesians, Romans calls us the body of Christ. We are Jesus in the flesh, sent by Jesus, as we say, to advance the cause of Christ in this world he so loves. Now, all, all morning, I've been interacting with people that this is just kind of foreign. It just, it, it doesn't feel like it's what I was raised in. And I get that because this last hundred year new theology has caused us to think we are separating and we are getting out of here. But the previous 1900 years says, no, the kingdom of heaven is coming. God sent his son here to bring the kingdom of heaven here. And Jesus sends us here to bring the kingdom of heaven here. And we get to enjoy that now and forever. So here's the challenge as we close. Let's deeply care for this world again. Let's deeply care for this world again. And let's, let's love our planet again. Uh, you know, evangelicals are not known for, for loving this planet. Uh, evangelicals do not have a reputation for being environmentalists. In fact, evangelicals have a reputation for being anti-environmentalist. And it's easy to understand why. We've changed our theology over the last hundred years to say it's all going to blow up. It's all going to go any minute now. It's going to all be wiped out. And so why bother with conservation? Why bother with, bother with clean water? Why bother with sustainability? Not, it's not sustaining anyway. We're out of here. It's gone. Thankfully, the church is recapturing this theology of redemption, and it's happening very, very fast. This hundred-year theology is on a quick decline, and recapturing this theology of redemption is taking off. And we're very proud to be a, a part of that. And that means we, we are allowed to care for this planet and not be judged as, I don't know, whatever, fill in the blank. How many planets are there in the universe? I counted this morning. That many. There are that many <laughs> uh, planets in the universe. How many of those are Earth-like in that Goldilocks zone surrounding stars? That many planets are Earth-like. There's a lot of planets that are Earth-like. So the question is, well, if there are that many Earth-like planets in the universe, there must be some that are just like Earth with the kind of life that we have here on Earth, intelligent life. Well, the odds, if you just take God out of it for, I'm taking God out of this for 90 seconds, not allowed. 90 seconds, godless moment here. If you just take chance, all we have is chance, there are virtually no odds that this many planets like Earth have life like we have, complex, intelligent life. Odds are there's no planet like ours. 
In fact, this is so much the case that astrophysicist Ethan Siegel says this about this math. Although it's true that there are an astronomical number of possibilities for intelligent, technologically advanced life forms, the huge uncertainties, again, God's not in this, so the huge uncertainties like abiogenesis, life coming from non-life, then being able to sustain, and then sustain for a period of time to become more advanced, those huge uncertainties make it a very real possibility that humans are the only space-faring aliens our universe has ever known. This is just astrophysics. That means our planet is very, very special. And the life on this planet is very, very special. Okay, let's let God back into this scenario here. God has uniquely ordained this planet and life on this planet for a very specific purpose, to honor him, to take care of this planet. It's legal to love this planet. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, uh, God's word says, creation itself groans for redemption. Creation is longing for redemption. Let's love this planet. And then finally, let's love everyone everywhere. Let's love everyone everywhere. That's the theme of our 50-year anniversary celebration, 2018. 50 years at Rancho, loving everyone everywhere with a vision of God's grace sweeping the planet and a vision of God's grace resulting in redeeming this earth and all of mankind uniting together and uniting under God and under his grace, celebrating God and and enjoying God's love together. If that's this redemptive vision that we have, then yes, let's love our planet. And yes, let's love everyone everywhere. And that should be the very natural tendency of the Christian church that truly understands what redemption means. Jesus gave his life not just for good people, not for religious people, not for compliant people. Jesus gave his life for all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all races, the powerful, the the weak, the healthy and the sick, the people who have and the people who have not, the people who are famous and the people who no one will ever know. If we have this sense from God's word, if we have this sense of mission that as the Father sent the Son, the Son sends us to bring the kingdom of heaven, then it's the most natural thing in the world to love everyone everywhere without judgment, without thought, without wondering, is this sacred or secular? Are you in? Are you out? We just love, and love just gushes and gushes and gushes because ultimately it is love that transforms lives. It is love that changes this world, and that love comes from God who so loved the world he sent his son to bear the sin and the suffering of the world upon himself, to pay for it in full, and rise again from the dead, not to just give me or you eternal life, but to bring new and eternal life to this world he so loves. So what is your passion? What's broken in this world that you want to see fixed? Understand that God wants it fixed as well. And because you have a passion to fix it, God's going to use you to help fix it. And that passion could be a passion for unity. In this intense political divide, maybe God's going to use you to bring unity. Women's issues, thankfully, are front and center, right? Uh, Where you could say finally it's no longer acceptable for there to be women who are just naturally mistreated or abused or harassed or underpaid. It's just not acceptable anymore, thankfully. A lot of work to be done. Racial reconciliation is a constant priority based on America's original sin of slavery. That's a constant priority, right? Maybe that's on your heart to bring a real fix. We had this horrific Florida uh, shooter incident uh, this last week that brings a ton of stuff right to the surface. And every time something as horrific as this happens, it brings a ton of stuff to the surface and then we dismiss it in two weeks. 
No longer on the news, we no longer care, but I'm telling you there's a massive epidemic, multiple epidemics that impact this shooter's story. And there's a lot of terrible things about this kid's life. Certainly born with some issues that he needed care over and wasn't given adequate care over the issues he was born with. He had a family uh, life that was horrific. Uh, he was marginalized, left by himself. He was disciplined, which is fine, but the question is, was there care on the other side of that discipline? And then he was left with all of his mental issues and depressive issues, left alone in an angry household, marginalized by himself with his computer and weapons. There is a time and a place to address all those very complicated issues. And, and time after time, these things happen, and time after time, we get hyped about it for a week and then it goes away. I don't know when the time is gonna be when we take this seriously. And maybe the time is for the church to be able to say, there's a mental health crisis here. There's a marginalization crisis going on. Maybe we can step up. I have no answers right now. But what is your cause? And just know with the heart of God for you and the heart of God to equip you and the heart of God to change this world into the kingdom of heaven, he will use you to make this place better than you found it. He will use you to bring a bit of the kingdom of heaven to this earth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. The truth of your word paints a clear picture of your love and care for this world, how you handcrafted this world and handcrafted humanity to be in your image. And we confess that we broke the place. But in grace, you have a vision to save it, to save it through care, to save it through love, to save it as you send your son into the world to take on human flesh, to fully engage this world, to serve this world and to take on this world's suffering and to take on the world's shame and this world's sin upon himself. He was crushed under the weight of the brokenness of this world, but on the other side of his crushing was a resurrection, a renewal, and a vision of redemption. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just for our personal salvation, the forgiveness of sin, and, and living forever. We accept that, we believe that, but the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ was also a vision for this world. That all injustice will die that all unrighteousness will die, all suffering will die, all sickness will die, and what will rise again from the dead is eternal life for all, all men, women, children, every tribe, tongue, and nation. God, with the compulsion of that vision, would you allow us to, to wrestle together, discovering what our passion is, knowing full well that you will equip us to change this world to be more and more like the kingdom of heaven. Unlock and unleash in every one of us a world-changing theology, a world-changing uh, perspective, and a world-changing faith that will reach out to those who we know and love and reach out to the stranger and bring mercy, justice, care, and love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.